Welcome to the LIPN Podcast, brought to you by the members of the Long Island Professional Network, where business professionals come to grow. Thank you for listening today. I'm Meryl Loeschner, and I am a marketing and communications consultant and podcast producer with Smith Douglas Associates. The breakdown of a relationship is never easy. And with a marriage, you not only have all the emotional things to deal with, you have a lot of legal details to handle as well. I reached out through the Long Island Professional Network to Kristen Devaney, a family law attorney with Keith Shapiro and Ford here on the island. I wanted to know more about how divorce is handled in New York, what is the process and the pitfalls, and what people needed to know before taking that first step. Thank you for joining us today. Should I call a divorce lawyer if I'm not 100% sure? I mean, what if I change my mind once the, the divorce papers are served? What what happens? Well, if you are not 100% sure, that is the biggest reason to contact a divorce lawyer to sit down with them and go through the formal intake and figure out what rights that you're entitled to and what obligations that you're going to have if a divorce were to go forward. If you are served with papers or if you decide to go forward and then subsequently change your mind or there's some sort of reconciliation and neither one of you want to go forward, then all it is is a one-page document that gets filed saying that the case is discontinued and that's it. You don't need to go any deeper than that. I'm having fights with my spouse, but we're still relatively good friends. Do I need a divorce lawyer if we agree on everything if it's very amicable. Ultimately, I suppose people could do the divorce papers by themselves. However, I have had a lot of people come to me who tried it that way and it doesn't work because it gets kicked back and things need to be changed. There needs to be particular language in the divorce documentation that didn't get put in and and then the clerk or the judge rejects the papers and you're, you know, now six months down the line and you have to redo the paperwork. So I always tell people that even if you agree on everything, I urge people to still hire an attorney to do the paperwork. If there are children, so even if you agree on a custody and parenting time arrangement as well as a child support number, there still should be a written agreement that is formal and has all the, I guess what attorneys like to call boilerplate language that protects the client as well as the agreement being valid and it becomes enforceable better than I suppose just doing the paperwork yourself without an agreement. I have plenty of cases where everything is amicable and the terms were resolved and I was hired to do the paperwork. We never set foot in a courtroom and it went fairly seamless. There's a little hiccup, you know, every now and then, but ultimately it gets accomplished a lot more efficiently when you have an attorney doing the paperwork. I can imagine it's always a lot more difficult when you have children involved as opposed to just a childless couple. It just is an additional issue that needs to be addressed. You know, when there's no kids, that knocks out two issues because you, you don't have child support and you don't have custody. It can be more of a discussion and getting to a resolution. Sometimes there's not because sometimes everybody's on the same page with these are who the kids are going to re- reside with and 
this is going to be the parenting time schedule. Maybe they get along well enough where they don't need a specific schedule, and it's just as agreed between the two of them, which works out fine for purposes of the agreement. So it depends on what you know how amicable they are, whether or not it's an issue. But it's definitely additional language that needs to be in an agreement. What about same-sex couples? Is the mm-hmm. law, are the laws the same? Yes, the Marriage Equality Act made that this, it's all it's all the same. So child support is still applicable. Custody is applicable. It's interesting because with custody, if there is a same-sex couple, that person should be on the birth certificate or have some sort of order of adoption to legally have the same rights or some sort of custody order. So sometimes we have to have an acknowledgement that that person is has been the parent in the child's life for a period of time. But generally, barring none of those issues, with respect to rights of custody, rights of parenting time and obligation and rights of child support, it's all the same. What about a couple who just lived together for 20 years yeah. and the like? Yeah. What what sort of rights do people who aren't yeah. married have? People think common law marriage, I think, is the situation that you're describing. And it's not called common law marriage, but there is what's called a constructive trust that you can impose. Now, it's not a divorce scenario where you show up in matrimonial court. It's actually a civil action where you you are trying to impose what's called a constructive trust and say that there are issues such as a property. That's the biggest issue. Like there's a house, but only one person's on the deed and, the, and they were never married. You go to court and you say, I wasn't on the deed because it was just a matter of convenience. Like it just didn't happen. I still have the rights to the house. I have a case right now that's dealing exactly with that scenario. And you're trying to ask the court that both parties have 50% uh, rights to the equity in the house. Sometimes it's an uphill battle. It's hard. So I always suggest that it's important for people to at least have joint title if you're not going to get married. But there is a way to impose a a right to an asset if you've been together for a long period of time. And there's that reliance. I am thinking about getting a divorce. How do I choose an attorney? It's a very personal decision, I think. You have to be comfortable, and the attorney has to be comfortable. This is a road. This is a journey that you guys are going on together. There's going to be bumps along the way. There might be some bumps in the relationship. It's not going to be perfect. But you need to choose somebody, ultimately, that you are comfortable with, somebody who can speak to you with respect to what the law is, not giving you what you want to hear all the time, and somebody who you believe will fight and advocate for you and what you're entitled to. You just got to be really comfortable because this is a journey that both you and the attorney go on together. This so is not- you should interview more than one attorney I think before so. picking one? I think so. Some people do not, and they immediately get that sense of, okay, I didn't interview anybody else, but this is who I want. You know, there are plenty of other people that will interview three or four times. Cost is another thing that's a factor for a lot of people. You might want to speak to different attorneys and figure out how much it's going to cost. And you want to speak candidly about not just the upfront cost, but the cost of the whole divorce. Looking at all of the issues, what do you think are going to be the most contested and the most expensive? And what do you think that you will be able to come on the same page with with respect to your spouse, because ultimately that's going to save you money in the end. And that should be something that you think about. What about mediators? Is Mm -hmm. that something that you sometimes port potential clients to first, if you think that mediation could get a better outcome? 
courts definitely use mediators. So there are in family court, there's, there are mediators and sometimes both sides are represented. And the judge says, why doesn't these parties try mediation, especially with parenting time type of issues? Because having a neutral person telling both parties that the non-custodial parent has rights to see these children and we just need to come up with a schedule and here's what one normally looks like and how can we adapt it to what will work for you guys given your work schedules depending on what holidays some parties hold more weight to than others and that tends to help because it's a it's a neutral person and attorneys are out of the mix who sometimes get their reputation of trying to litigate rather than come to a resolution, which I do not think is true, by the way. But I think some parties have that sense. And so have, going to a mediator helps calm them down and kind of make everything equal level. Ultimately, I don't, I see things that don't work in mediation. So I, I, I know cases can work, divorce cases, if they go to a mediator, certainly. But I see the ones that don't. So I don't really know statistically whether or not mediation works over just hiring an attorney and going forward with a divorce. I decide to get a divorce. I choose you as an attorney. What are some of the first questions you're going mm -hmm. to ask me the first time we meet? The biggest thing is that I want to know the economic picture. I want to know what's going on. So yes, I right away I'll ask if there are children and and the income information so that I can kind of get in my head what we have here with respect to any sort of maintenance issues or child support issues. But the biggest thing that I'm writing down is trying to figure out what do we have assets wise? Do we have a house? Do we have cars? Is, are they leased or are they owned? Because there might be equity there. Retirement accounts. Do we have pensions? I want to get a full picture of what these parties have. And so I suggest that if you're going to speak to an attorney before you get a divorce, that you yourself are armed with some knowledge. There are plenty of people who do not know. So I'm not saying don't speak to an attorney unless that unless you know everything because there's what happens in marriages is that which is very common and I'm not saying it's bad but people tend to do certain roles divide and conquer type of mentality and so one person kind of becomes the money maker one person becomes the person at home taking care of the kids in the household I'm not saying that it's as common as it was a long time ago but it does still happen and so the person who is at home isn't paying as much attention to the bills and the monetary aspect and what exists as far as assets so there's plenty of people who come and they say i just i don't know and we'll find out you know that's the whole point of discovery so we can find those answers for them but that's the biggest thing is i want to know the whole family picture and I, once i get that then my first question to people is what brought you here today and then I start getting the facts and the story and to figure out what's going on that that is bringing them where they just served with divorce papers or does something happen that makes them want to initiate the action and then we kind of dive into the conversation from there. I'm assuming that as part and parcel you have what's called a client intake sheet which yes. takes over all the information of the, the basic parts yes. of the, the case. Yes. Are there mm -hmm. checklists that before you go to a lawyer these are the 800 things you should be bringing with you? You don't need to bring any documentation, I would say. I mean, tax returns are always good or pay stubs are always good so that we can see income, especially if it's a joint return and then I can figure out both of the parties' incomes. I can do any sort of support calculation, give them some sort of indication of what that would be to the extent that everyone is W-2 employed. But other than that, there's health insurance cards are always good to bring because in order to start an action, you need that information. Other than that, 
just yourself. Anything that we need, we will ask later. We fill out what's called a statement of net worth in every single case. That is a document that sets forth all of the monthly expenses, the assets, and liabilities. We don't do that on day one, but that's one of the first steps in any sort of matrimonial case, and the other side has to do the same thing. And what that does is give deeper economic picture of how these people are living and what they have and what they owe so that we can do that exchange, and that is a good starting block to any sort of uh, conversation to move this case towards resolution. With the statement of net worth, I might require some documentation. But on day one, there's there's nothing you should definitely bring other than maybe tax returns. That would be helpful to be able to calculate support. If my spouse and I are going through an amicable breakup, can we both hire you? Or do Good we question, each need yeah. a different attorney? You can't both hire me. And I can't play, the, I can't have the mediator hat on. And then if something happens where there's some sort of breakdown, be somebody's attorney like that. It's just, I generally do not do it. So I will represent one and then I'm happy to have an amicable conversation with the three of them and come up with what the agreement is. And I will relay what the law provides to both of them. But I do not, I make it clear in the beginning that I do not represent both of them. Now, not all divorces are amicable. What happens if someone comes to you and says, I want a divorce, I'm married to someone who's violent, I'm scared for my life. How do you handle that? So if that occurs, then I have to relay various options that we have to get in front of a judge quickly. If there are kids involved, and depending on whether or not the violence is happening to the children or in front of the children, we may want to do an immediate motion to get in front of a judge to request certain things. Somebody is violent, then they may be removed from the house for a period of time. An order of protection is something that is an option for a client to do at the family court or the Supreme Court if they decide to do it, but it's a little bit faster to do it at the family court first and then perhaps pull it into the divorce. But I have to go through what it is that they want as consequence to what's going on at home. And some people, once they know the options, they will either pick one and, and probably a motion and will get in front of a judge as quick as possible, or they'll hold off because quite truthfully, the cost of a motion is sometimes outweighed the the decision to get in front of a judge and do an emergency application. But what I'll do is I'll go through all of those options and they can go from there. What are some of the things that you see couples arguing about the most? They may come in thinking they're doing an amicable divorce and then it gets derailed. What are, mm -hmm. what are some of the most common disconnects among couples? I think the most difficult is related to financial. And I think that's, one of the biggest reasons for the breakdown in the marriage to begin with, there's some sort of stress financially and both people come apart because they have different viewpoints of how to alleviate that stress, whether one party's working or not doing enough or something like that. And the other party thinks that they should, I don't know, various reasons, but ultimately financial is kind of like this undercurrent of common issues. Now, as far as during the divorce, the biggest problem that I see is that if we have children, we have two parties with children, so there needs to be, and, and they're separated, so they're not living in the same household, which is probably good, 
However, you still have the household expenses to pay for. You have child support temporarily that needs to be paid for by the person who does not physically have the children. And if let's throw maintenance in as an issue. So if there is a more moneyed spouse, then you're going to have temporary maintenance. And it calculation-wise, it's never going to be enough for the person who is owed the money to pay everything and maintain the lifestyle during the course of a divorce that perhaps they were living pre-divorce. And it's always going to be too much money for the person who is having to meet these obligations. And I represent both sides and I recognize both sides. So I get it. It's hard. And the cost of living here on Long Island is difficult with two income households. Once they separate and they're trying to even it out, the law doesn't provide enough and it provides too much for the person having to pay. That is probably the toughest issue during the course of a divorce that we have to try to figure out and that I have to tell my client what the reality is, what the statute forces the other person to pay, or if I'm representing the person who has to pay, statutorily, this is what you're required to pay. And I get it, a lot of times those people are living in a basement apartment, they, their, their life is giving a lot of their income to the other person I understand, but we need to get to the end in order to make it better. I know state by state, the statutes are all different. <clears throat> right. Are there any laws that are specifically unique to New York that some people may get surprised by? Sure. So child support is until 21 in New York. Other states like Connecticut is until 18. So that's different. I don't. There's plenty of other states with 21, but there's fewer. There's more with 18 being up, being the cutoff for child support. As far as college contribution, I'm not sure about other states. New York will impose a college obligation on parties up to the SUNY cap. The law will not force parties to pay a certain percentage of a private school expensive college education, which is for the obvious reason. I don't know how other states pan out if it's a similar state cap, but that's definitely something that's different from other states. Back in the day, New York was a needed to show fault, needed to show adultery, needed to show something. It's it's now no fault. Right. Yeah. It was actually one of the last, if not the last state to jump on board in the whole country with no fault divorce, which helped a lot of attorneys because it just switched in 2010, which now is nine years ago. But it was right after I started practicing. I thought it switched in the 70s. I had no, no idea. No, I think, I don't know when other states started implementing no fault or here it's called irretrievable breakdown of the marriage for a period of six months. Uh, but New York was one of the last. And so the grounds trial, so that, that could be a whole issue is grounds. So the reason why you're getting divorced and judges now don't even want to go down that road. So, which is hard to explain to a client who is going through dealing with a spouse who has been cheating on them and they just found out and they want to expose the adultery, right? And and there's nothing you can really gain by doing that. It's not like you're going to definitely get more of the house or you're definitely get more of the pension or something like that by those that type of behavior. There is a way to do it, but it has to really shock the conscience of the court. And unfortunately, the court is cheating is just not this something that the court hears all the time. So they've almost become numb to it and they just don't want to deal with grounds in that way. So it's easier because we resolve cases on no fault. So long as you've been married for six months, we can claim that. But that is difficult for clients to come to terms with as well, because they want the reasons out there. They want that in front of the judge, which I can understand. I mean, with the adultery aspect and having to prove it, 
before the law changed, people were having to, if it didn't happen, they were still utilizing that as an excuse to get a divorce. So they'd set up a scenario, you know, with, with pictures and video in order to tell the court, this is what's happening in order to get the divorce. And it, it wasn't even real, you know, I mean, there were professional the, actresses yeah, who right. were in several thousand right. adult right. cases because the, the professional people, they would hire this actress and <laughs> right. get, you get compromising positions and go to the judge. And, right. And it's also much better because arguing about grounds, you haven't even hit the custody issues or the equitable distribution of the assets issues yet. So you're, you're going head to head about why the marriage broke down and you haven't even gotten to the meat and substance of what to do about that, right? So, okay, you're entitled to a divorce. And now we've just gone at each other about how to get to that point. Now we have to go at each other again about the, you know, with respect to distributing everything and the kids. And so it's gotten a lot easier because we just bypassed that first, you know, why are you getting a divorce? Let's just get to the meat of the issue and get you guys separated and deal with the stuff. Okay, the divorce goes through... Am I still going to need a lawyer after all the papers are signed? Sometimes, unfortunately. If things are not happening in accordance with the judgment or something needs to be modified. So child support, uh, you can open that back up after three years if there's been a change in income up or down by 15%. You could go back to the family court. Whether you need a lawyer for that is up to you, but you probably should. And you can get things changed if things are not happening like child support is not being paid or maintenance is not going to be paid nothing's going to happen unless you enforce it the only way to enforce it is to go back to court and probably need to hire an attorney you can seek counsel fees reimbursement for having to do that but ultimately you should hire somebody in order to enforce what is owed to you also if there are retirement assets that you need to distribute just signing off on the agreement does not cause the distribution of the assets. A lot of times with the 401k, for example, you need to do a subsequent order called a qualified domestic relations order. And what that does is gives the employer the permission or the authorization to distribute whatever the agreement said at the time of retirement. And you need somebody to help you with that order. So that happens after the divorce. So yes, you might, depending on what issues are at stake. We were talking about the primary reasons for contention in a divorce. What is What goes into determining custody and child support when you're dealing with battling spouses? Okay, so custody, the statute says best interest of the children is how you determine custody. Sometimes we can come to an arrangement as to what that means and the parents are making that decision and sometimes it doesn't work and we have to have a trial. If we are in front of a judge and we have a custody dispute, the first thing most likely that a judge is going to do is order an attorney for the children. Depending on the children's ages, that may or may not have pretty strong significance in where the custody plays out. Uh, but best interest of the children, which is defined by like 10 factors is what the court looks at. So it's really fluid um, and malleable, and the court will look at the involvement of the parents in, in the children's education and health, who took the kids to doctor's appointments, who's involved in the IEP meetings. 
financial support for the kids, who are the kids primarily living with during the course of the litigation, and their what they want, their desires certainly come into play, and that will be advocated through the attorney that is being appointed for them. With respect to child support, that is statutory. So there is a cap if you're making, if the combined parental income is more than $148,000, you can argue that it should only be up to that cap. A lot of courts will go over it. You can argue that it should go over it for various circumstances to maintain the lifestyle that the kids are used to, etc. But child support ultimately is determined by income. And the main issue that comes into play with child support is if the income is being litigated. So if you don't have a W-2 employee, you have somebody who's self-employed, has their own business, and you've got to delve deeper into what that income is, that's where the questions come into play as far as what child support should be. Once you have the income figure, the child support amount is 17% for one child, 25% for two children, and you keep going up according to the statute, and you just do the calculation. In addition to child support, you have what's called add-ons. So you can also receive a portion of unreimbursed medical expenses from the non-custodial parent, extracurricular activities, sometimes up to a cap, sometimes not, educational expenses, tutoring type of expenses, summer camp, after school, childcare. Those are additional expenses that the non-custodial parent is going to have to contribute in addition to the monthly child support amount. My spouse and I are contemplating divorce We also want a company together. What happens now? Well, it depends on what you want to do with the company. Are you guys going to continue at the company together and maintain that? Or is somebody going to buy the other out? In which case, you'd have to do a forensic evaluation on the business to determine what the value is. If you also own a building that's in relation to the business, that might be a separate valuation. So I guess the answer to that question is dependent on what the plan is, right? On whether or not you're going to continue working together in the company or somebody's going to buy the other out or it'll get sold. I've never had a scenario where they're joint 50% owners of a company. I've definitely had people who have their own business and they're self-employed and the spouse has worked as doing the books and has participated in the company as an employee, but not like a joint owner. But in that case, the argument then becomes if the spouse who is an, kind of as an employee is no longer going to be an employee anymore, the question becomes, well, what interest is that spouse entitled to? And that kind of goes to, it's not a 50-50 split. It goes to how much did you put into the business yourself as far as man hours and working and whatever else. If you're a joint owner, then it's 50-50. But if you're an employee, which is the more common issue, then it's not going to be and it's going to be less. How do people deal with paying the bills and just running the household day-to-day in the middle of all of this? Yeah. During a divorce, if bills are not being paid, and they obviously need to be, we have to get in front of a judge, and we have to get what's called a pendente lite order. Pendente lite means like in the interim, so during the course of a divorce. And you can get this order which temporarily resolves those types of issues because that's a lot of times a big deal. Well, you didn't pay the water bill and you're supposed to pay the water bill, you know, and we've got to figure out how it's going to be paid. You both have to contribute towards these expenses. The only exception to that, I guess, if we if we have somebody who's has no income and hasn't during the course of the marriage. But the reality is 
you're going to look at what your income is, what his income is, and you're going to figure out what shares are applicable to both of you to pay the water bill. And we can do it creatively where, okay, my income is going to pay for the mortgage and my income is going to pay for all the utilities or do it that way. Every case is completely different, but we have to figure that out if the parties can't figure it out themselves. And ultimately what a court is going to do is base it on both of them contributing and figure out how much they each need to. When thinking about the financial aspects, especially for someone who's been, couples who've been married for a long time, how do you start splitting all this up? We're talking about property and, and insurance and investing. And how do you split that? I normally will chart it all out, asset by asset. If I have the value as of commencement, that's wonderful too. And then I can put all the values in the chart. And I figure out numerically, count putting all everything into a pot, which is what the law does. It's a big marital pot. Throw it all in. 50-50 is the presumption. What is it? What's that number? And then we can start playing around with how they each get that number. So perhaps the house is very important to somebody and they're owed X amount of dollars from a 401k from the other one. I'll keep the house, you keep the whole 401k. And we can start playing around with how do you get the number that you're entitled to because there are so many different ways. I think that is the most fun thing about this field is you can really be creative, especially when you have the assets to work around. And then you could do a buyout by waiving something else. We can definitely work with that. But I I try to get all the, the whole picture, all the information first, and then figure out, okay, putting it all into one big pot, what are they each entitled to, and then how are we going to get there? How did you become a family lawyer? What made you choose this path? I went to law school in D.C., and while there, I did a clinic called Families in the Law Clinic. So that was my first, probably, exposure to family law, and it stuck with me. It felt like a field that I could make a difference in, And I feel like I do make a difference, not all the time, (laughs) but enough to make it worthwhile. And I came to Long Island after graduating and I got my first job working in a matrimonial family law attorney. And it's what I've been doing ever since. I'm comfortable. I know the law. I know how to do it. I genuinely want to get people to the next stage in their lives. That's something that's very important to me because they come to me in a horrible position even if it's uncontested, this is not a fun time. This is not fun at all. And they need somebody to get them through to the other side so they can focus on themselves, on their kids and moving forward and putting this behind them. And even working with that person in a way that's going to benefit themselves. And if there are kids involved, obviously this is a relationship that's going to continue forever. They're going to be at the kids' weddings. They're going to be at graduations and they need to learn to be able to work with one another. And I want to get them to that point. What made you go to law school in the first place? I guess my, I mean, I come from a family of lawyers. My grandfather was a lawyer in this field as well. He also did criminal. And my other grandfather was a district attorney. And so perhaps I got a little bit from them. I will say I did not go to law school right away. I took a break. I wanted to make sure it was something that I definitely wanted to pursue. I was a paralegal for a couple of years in Manhattan at a big firm, which was not this type of law. It was it was civil litigation that was not matrimonial. But I just thought that I wanted to do it. And I enjoyed being a paralegal. I thought it was genuinely, I like, I, I mean, I know it was just a paralegal position, but I really liked 
the trial prep and the deposition prep and trying to figure out trial strategy and reviewing the discovery and stuff like that. I really enjoyed it. So that's what made me go. If people have any other questions, how can we contact you? I am an attorney with Keith Shapiro and Ford. Our website is longislanddivorcelawyers.com. You can find all my information on there and you can read my bio and my background as well. You can email me at kdevaney, D-E-V-A-N-E-Y, at k, as in Keith, S as in Sam, the word and, A-N-D, F as in frank.com. Or give me a call at 516-222-0200 and I can speak with you. It's a free consultation, either over the phone or in person. Like, you know, hear what's going on and hopefully we can help you and guide you in the right direction. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the LIPN podcast. Brought to you by the Long Island Professional Network and produced by Smith Douglas Associates. To learn more about the LIPN, visit our website at lipn.org or join our meetup under Long Island Professional Network.